Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi departed Taiwan Wednesday after her incendiary visit that infuriated the Chinese government, only to have the geopolitical tensions follow her to South Korea. Pelosi and her congressional delegation's next stop was Seoul, where she met with her South Korean counterpart, National Assembly Speaker Kim jin Hyo and other ruling party members yesterday. But South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol did not meet her. He is taking time off at home in Seoul and did not feel compelled to disrupt his staycation. What are the real ramifications of this fool's errand? Well, let's turn to our first guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So Pelosi's roundabout flight to Taiwan shows China's very long reach. The path of Pelosi's military plane to Taiwan was notable for how carefully it avoided the South China Sea. Uh, So, KJ, there are Americans that are saying, oh, look, Pelosi stood up to China. She went to Taiwan. Yeah, but... She did everything she could do to avoid that smoke from China. KJ, no. Yes, absolutely. She did everything she could to try and avoid, you know, getting caught. And the Chinese knew she was on the way anyway. Currently, you know, they let her let her go. And then they, as soon as she left, they started these military exercises. But it's essentially a catch and release. You know, it's a it's a power. Uh, it's, it's a power play from the Chinese. So certainly, uh Speaker Pelosi, you know, did not uh, stand up to China in any meaningful way. You know, KJ, something else I think that is important, you know, one of the things that we're hearing in the West is China blinked and therefore, you know, they lost. This was a strategic loss. However, again, you know, a person who studied self-defense, I understand the art of fighting without fighting, you know, the Bruce Lee winning a battle without fighting. And I think to understand the Chinese culture means, okay, they're doing things differently. They take a long-term approach. But when you understand that culture and the perspective of winning a battle without fighting, you understand that a they have a different agenda and a different set of tactics and a different strategy that wouldn't necessarily align with Western culture. And B, all the other countries are watching, and it is apparent that other countries are saying, this is problematic, and clearly the U.S. instigated this. And I think that's an important factor, too, over the long term, over how other countries deal with this particular interaction. KJ. You're absolutely correct. I mean, China sent out all the signals that it could. You know, the lights were all flashing red, telling them not to do it. The U.S. did it anyway. And this was clearly a trigger, a violation. And the Chinese stood down. They took their time. uh, And, uh, you know, they are working a long-term strategy. But, you know, already as uh, uh, Wilma pointed out, there are uh, repercussions. I mean, the fact that 
that Nancy Pelosi would not meet with Yoon Seok-yeol, sorry, uh, Yoon Seok-yeol, the Korean president, would not meet with Nancy Pelosi, already tells us that the fallout from this meeting is tremendous. I mean, just to go over that, Yoon declined to meet Pelosi because he was on a vacation. It's actually worse than that. He was on a staycation. He was 20 or 30 minutes away from Nancy Pelosi, but he didn't meet her. He went to see a theater show that day, and then he had a gourmet dinner with the actors. That's some serious signaling of priorities. Talk about the longer-term implications of those signals. And to Garland's point, South Korea realized that this trip was problematic. South Korea seems to be doing everything in its power to avoid those war games that China is now engaged in encircling Taiwan. As I said in the opening, South Korea doesn't want none of that smoke. So talk about the longer-term implications of these signals. Well, I think the longer-term implication of these signals is that the quote-unquote Japan-South Korea-U.S. alliance, the JACUS, is not as robust as the United States would like to think it is. And with a loose cannon like Yoon Seok-yeol in the Korean presidency, I mean, Yoon was the uh, U.S. favorite. They lobbied for him uh, to get elected. But he is such uh, a dud uh, and a loose cannon. I think they don't know quite what to do with him. He's like a Juan Guaido or a Zelensky. Uh, you know, it's just... Uh, you don't quite know what's going to happen with them. And uh, it looks like this non-meeting with Nancy Pelosi uh, is is a signal that Yun is not going to completely toe the U.S. line and that there's a, a little bit of an about-face uh, happening. And we'll see more uh, when, when we see how he deploys or doesn't deploy the FAD uh, and also the major address that he is expected to make on August 15th. Let me throw this in because I think these things all go together. We have seen recently that North Korea has significantly supported Russia and Ukraine, and now they're coming out really strong in support of China when it comes to Taiwan. And Yoon's numbers are, you know, as they would say in the Old West, lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. So you put all of those things together and oh, and let me add this. And Russia and China are talking about strengthening their alliance. So Yoon has to be looking at that happening and looking at North Korea saying, oh, and my numbers. At any rate, put all of those things together. What does that all mean to you, KJ? Well, it means, among other things, that the alliance, uh, the anti-hegemonic alliance is strengthening. North Korea has always been a strong ally of China. They're kind of bound together by blood and history. The Korean guerrillas helped uh, essentially establish the People's Republic of China by fighting alongside the PLA, which is why China felt obliged to come to North Korea's defense in 1950. But uh, the fact that China and Russia Russia are strengthening their uh, bonds is, I think, significant. We already know that they're cooperating, but... You know, symbolic statements also signal that, you know, that there is, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a, a sea change happening. And as for Yun, as I said, you know, he's, he is a very, very damaged candidate. And that's clear even before he was elected. He currently has 25 percent 
support of the population, which is the lowest of any Korean president uh, in the history of the presidency uh, at that time. And also the military is unhappy with Yoon Seok-yeol. He forced them to move out of the Ministry of Defense building because he wanted to move the Blue House into the Ministry of National Defense building. That's like moving the White House into the Pentagon and forcing the military brass to, to get out of there. And also he's a draft dodger. And the South Korean military absolutely detests draft dodgers. No Korean politician has ever succeeded as a draft dodger. Uh, and the last thing is that he's uh, apparently, uh, you know, it w- has very bad relations with the national police. He's accused them of sedition. And so he has, you know, uh, three important factions against, against him, the Korean people, the military and the national police. And now he's falling out of favor or, you know, scrambling or, you know, picking a fight with the White House. So I don't know how long his star will continue to shine. There is an issue with a 92-year-old comfort woman, Lee Yong-soo. Who is she and what happened with her that's, I think, causing some embarrassment for Nancy Pelosi? Well, Lee Yong-soo is uh, one of the comfort These are the women who were enslaved and taken into sexual slavery by the Japanese military. There are probably about 400,000 of them. They were raped on average between 20 to 50 uh, times a day. And their survival rate was between 75 to 90% fatality. That is up to 90% of them would die during their captivity and sexual enslavement. Lee Yong-soo was one of the women who survived this uh, horrific ordeal. And she uh, apparently was seeking an audience uh, with Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi came out public and said that, you know, she wants reconciliation and, you know, justice around the comfort women issue. So she, I think she tried to meet with Nancy Pelosi. And instead of getting, you know, a nice greeting or a handshake or a hug, she was manhandled and brutalized by uh, security And this is despite Pelosi's, quote, unquote, stated support for the comfort women. Uh, So, I mean, it's pretty clear that Nancy Pelosi, what she wants from the comfort women is to shut up and to go away because they make Japan, South Korea, a reconciliation awkward. And we also know that that is the case because in San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, there was a comfort woman statue that was being constructed. And Nancy Pelosi did not give one eye of it. She did not lift one finger to help the project. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things I think that is critical to understand when you're talking about any confrontation and whatever it is between the United States and China is history of the Asian Pacific area. And that seems to be that the U.S. does not. They go to, uh, you know, Indonesia and Vietnam, countries that suffered genocides at the hands of the United States, Cambodia, and try to get these people to support them. I suspect, based on what I'm reading, that a lot of countries in the area looked at this particular event with horror. There has not been a lot of war in their area. It has not been destabilized. There's been economic growth. And this appears to be something that's going to bring chaos and destabilization to the area. I suspect a lot of countries that might have considered considered somewhat economically aligning with the United States are going to say, we want to sit on the sidelines. We don't want to be involved in that. Do you think I'm wrong? Uh, I don't think you're wrong. I think a lot of them are just sitting on the sidelines. They're trying to stay as far away 
from this fight that the U.S. is trying to provoke, where it wants its vassals or its quote-unquote allies uh, to fight uh, a proxy war with China. They don't want any of that. They want to have normal trade relations, have good win-win cooperation as they have had over the past 40-plus years. There's a piece by Vijay Prashad, The World Does Not Want a Global NATO. He says most of the world rejects NATO's policies and global aspirations and does not wish to divide the international community into outdated Cold War blocks. He says the fragility of Europe's energy supply has once again been on display in recent months. Gas shipments through the Nord Stream pipeline were reduced by 40 percent and that Basically, this is causing a major split in Europe, but that that major split can also see it manifesting itself as the Biden administration is trying to strengthen NATO and develop other NATO-type blocks in other regions of the world, and the world is saying no. Your thoughts, KJ No. Yes. Well, you know, NATO is a Cold War instrument. It's an instrument of U.S. imperial power projection during the Cold War. And it should have been retired. But instead, it was repurposed into, uh, you know, the instrument of U.S. neocolonial uh, domination after 1991. Uh, and that was a complete and total mistake. And uh, as as you know, um, none of the uh, working people of Europe or Asia or Africa or Latin America benefit from any of this. And so there's no surprise that there is opposition to this. Uh, what is even more clear is that people certainly do not want an expansion of NATO into the Pacific, which, is now, which it is now claiming. They certainly do not want an Asian NATO or, you know, the sub-variants of NATO. And they certainly do not uh, agree with the U.S. idea that Taiwan has been drafted into uh, NATO through a kind of non-NATO, as a non-NATO ally. Uh, I think the idea is absurd, but it speaks to this Cold War imperial mentality that seeks to create a weapon of war and then wield it like a hammer around the world without any regard to the needs or the suffering of the people. You know, KJ, I think additionally, any country that the U.S. would approach to join NATO has to look at the countries in NATO and say, did it bring peace? Did it bring stability? Did it bring economic engagement? The countries in Europe are going straight to hell. I mean, economically, so any country that was asked, it seems to me around the world would have to say no thanks. Absolutely. They're going to hell and in a handbasket. And um, and they can also note that their not only uh, their economies were drafted, that is to say, their uh, wallets were drafted uh, into the war, and now they're feeling the pinch. And they had no say in that. And so, where is this much vaunted democratic liberal order if the people have no say? in how they are affected by war or whether to wage it at all. Let me ask something here that I haven't heard a lot of people discuss, and it may be because it's not worthy of discussion. But so when you look at Nancy Pelosi's fool's errand into Taiwan, and then you look at China's response, the war games that it's now engaged in, and the fact that it has encircled Taiwan with its Navy, then you look at President Yun refusing to meet with Nancy Pelosi, 
What does this do to North Korea? What does this do to the hand of Kim Jong-un? Does China's reaction and now the world's kind of disgust with the United States move to Taiwan, does this have any impact on North Korea? Well, North Korea is watching the situation very, very closely. Um, they were very, very dismayed when Yoon Seo-yeol was uh, elected. And during his campaign, he threatened to place nuclear missiles on, North Korea, uh, on South Korean soil and that he believed that North Korea should be taken up with a preemptive attack. And so they were very, very concerned. Uh, I think they're sitting back and watching with a slight grin on their faces as they see that the quizzling South Korean state has not been able to manage its affairs well as, uh, you know, as a subaltern for the United States in its aggression against China. And of course, North Korea is an indelible part of uh, the China-North Korea, uh, you know, uh, uh, alliance. In fact, North Korea is the only country uh, in the world to actually have a formal military alliance with China. So what do you foresee in terms of, again, looking at these signals, in terms of South Korea and the United States, is Yun's refusal to meet with Nancy Pelosi, is this going to be an issue going forward? Is Joe Biden going to try to take him to task? Or is this just water under the bridge? You know, I think they're very unhappy with it. As I said, it was a huge diss. Not even a single official came out to meet Pelosi uh, at the airport. And every South Korean president has met, even the ones that are opposed to the United States, has met with the House uh, Speaker of the House. And so for Yun not to meet uh, with Pelosi is a massive insult. Will the U.S. take it lying uh, down or will they recalibrate, rethink their relationships? I think all of that uh, uh, remains to be seen. But uh, my sense uh, is that Yun will prob- probably come limping back uh, because of his sycophantic approach in general. They'll try and make nice. But I think that there has been trust uh, that has been fundamentally lost already, uh, in addition to the, the general suspicions that were already in, in, in place. K.J. No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. So the numbers indicate that employers added 528,000 jobs in July, shattering expectations. The analysts think the labor market has been a pillar of strength for an economy dealing with surging inflation. Well, is that true? 
Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy. He teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He is the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He's Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you guys. So the report is the hot labor market strengthened more than expected in July as employers added 528,000 jobs, a figure that reflects an economy beyond recovery from the pandemic while quelling fears that a recession could be imminent. With these latest numbers, Jack, has the economy recovered all the jobs lost due to COVID and is this the end of recession talk? Yeah, well, uh, yes and no. Uh, you got to understand that um, these numbers, 528,000, which is much higher than even the consensus uh, expectations here by economists, uh, uh, re- reflect um, some very significant uh, statistical manipulations on the, on the raw data. You know, th- these numbers aren't actual jobs. Uh, these are a statistic. Uh, uh, the government takes the raw data and does statistical manipulations on it. And one of the major manipulations is called the seasonality adjustment. And uh, I've seen reports that um, uh, they expected a big seasonality adjustment uh, this summer. Uh, and uh, later it will uh, reduce itself. Uh, typically, I, I believe the numbers over adjust in the summer for seasonality and under just in the winter for seasonality. I think that's some of the huge increase. There are other statistical manipulations that go on that you know we don't have time to talk about that I think are at play here, like the the new business development model. Uh, but, uh, you know, keep in mind that um, the unemployment rate of uh, 3.5% behind these numbers uh, is really only for full-time employed workers, you know, 5.7 million. If you look at the government's other tables, table A-15, for example, where you get the U-6 unemployment rate official, right, uh, that includes the 50 million or so people who are part-time employed, temp employed, uh, gig workers, freelancers, uh, 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 unincorporated independent uh, businesses with one worker, in other words, uh, what you get is an unemployment rate of 7.2%, not 3.5, and 11.8 million people still jobless. So, you know, the media likes to cherry pick the data uh, that looks the best, and it's really doing that here, and it's especially uh, uh, boosted because of these seasonality adjustments, I think. Um, if you look elsewhere, and I've looked through this report in detail this morning, mm-hmm. if, if you look elsewhere, for example, in uh, Table A-8, uh, if you look at uh, employed persons, non-farm, employed, total employed people, non-farm, Think about this. In July, it was 156 million. In June, it was 156,110,000. So in this table, employment, total employment has gone down. How do you, uh, you know, figure this contradiction between uh, table uh, A-8, where you got a decrease in total employment, and uh, table, you know, A-1, where you got an increase by 528,000. Uh, 
well, the different assumptions going into these. So, you know, what's what's the correct assumption? Uh, other other statistics that are important in this report, like labor force participation rate and the employment uh, population ratio, uh, they're unchanged or down, actually. Uh, the participation rate actually declined here uh, by one-tenth of a percent from 62.2 to 62.1. Uh, that may not seem significant, but when you, you're talking about uh, a percent or a tenth of a percent of 164 million people, uh, then you're talking about hundreds of thousands. So, you know, these other statistics show that uh, not much is happening over the last three months in a positive sense in the labor force uh, or uh, dropouts. Dropouts uh, are still pretty significant, and they don't get calculated in the U.S. version in, in, in the unemployment reports. So you got to look at the whole report is what I'm saying. And there's other statistics in this report that say things are pretty flat uh, and not much improvement going on the last three months. And that's indicative of labor data jobs data, which is a lagging indicator of at least six months to what's going on in the economy. I think we're in a transition over the summer, and by the end of this year, you're going to see some significant softening in these jobs numbers by November, December. It's a lagging indicator. So your point, you know, what does this mean for uh, uh, for the recession? The GDP is very clear. There, we are in a recession. And uh, yeah, they may say that the NBER economists uh, say, no, not yet, because we look at more than GDP. But I tell you, in all the 12, 13 recessions since 1947, whenever you've had a two consecutive quarters GDP decline, you've always had the official definition by the NBER agreeing with that later on down the road. So I think that's kind of where we're at. Uh, the other comment I'd make about these numbers is that this 528,000 is really going to raise the likelihood of the Fed uh, hiking rates another 75 basis points next time it meets, unless something else happens in between here. Dr. Jack, there was recently an email that's been, you know, going around that got out where uh, I can't remember which bank it was, but it was the head of one of these banks who sent an email basically, you know, happy about unemployment saying, yes, we're hoping we can get another percentage and a half of unemployment and that'll make things better. Why would the people who are in charge of banks, why would the people, the elite kind of economic ruling class, see an increase in unemployment as positive for them? Because it means uh, fewer people are going to have money uh, to spend, consumption will be less and GDP will come down and inflation will come down. If you whack demand, by laying people off, uh, inflation comes down because spending and demand comes down. And uh, they like the idea of uh, inflation that's not as high uh, because when it's 9%, 10% that it is now, uh, businesses don't want to invest because they don't know what the future is going to be. Uh, they know people aren't going to purchase as much as their, of their goods, uh, and that means less profit. So, you know, you trace it through this relationship of these variables, and it's very clear they like more unemployment because it means less inflation and it means more money for them. On the international front, Bank of Russia considers feasible to convert state companies' funds from dollars and euro. 
The Bank of Russia believes that it is reasonable to convert accumulated funds of state-owned companies to different currencies. Quote, it is feasible for non-financial organizations to convert accumulated funds in currencies of unfriendly states to other currencies. The release of relevant directives by the Russian government will be justified in respect of companies with the government participation, according to the Russian Central Bank. What does that signal to you, and what do you anticipate the repercussions to be on the international market as it relates to currencies? Well, what that reflects is a movement away from the dollar and trade, uh, which is beginning to uh, gain some momentum worldwide. Uh, when Russia says that, it, it's really telling its companies that uh, uh, it's okay uh, to accept other companies' currents, uh, other countries' currencies when it uh, does exports, um, instead of uh, uh, requiring a trade in the dollar. You know, the global trading currency used to be like 85% of all currency uh, 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 trades uh, globally were, were done with the dollar. Um, and the rest, you know, with the euro and a few others. Uh, but what this means is that, uh, you know, Russia and probably China and others are, are moving away from uh, country to country trade, exports and imports using the dollar. And they're going to use their own currencies or they're going to agree to a, a – I've heard that the, that the Chinese yuan is really uh, increasing in demand uh, simply because uh, – of this development, uh, moving away from the dollar, you know, and uh, the uh, history will show these sanctions. Uh, I mean, the U.S. really shot itself in the foot, I think, long term economically. It's undermined the dollar. It's undermining its uh, other institutions like the global payment system, uh, uh, undermining the role of uh, IMF and others. There will be alternative IMFs uh, being created in the emerging market world. Uh, the BRICS will expand. Um, BRIC, you know, the, mm -hmm. those countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and all these trends have been accelerated now uh, because of these, these sanctions. Um, so, you know, uh, the U.S. and, and it, its Europe uh, uh, economic satrapies, uh, Europe and Japan, uh, are going to find themselves more and more isolated, I think, in the long run. That process has begun. So this is just another expression of that development of moving away from the dollar. Let me ask you this. We've seen the euro drop to parity with the dollar. We've seen, you know, the euro has not looked well. With everything going on, if the deindustrialization of Europe continues, if they're not able to work something out for cheap energy with Russia and they keep falling, where's the bottom for the euro? Where do you see the euro going? I think the dollar's strong for a while, but what happens to the euro? And, and let me add this. If the euro should collapse, then how would that affect the dollar? Would it strengthen it or weaken it? Well, you got to understand that the dollar is the global currency and uh, the direction in which it moves uh, up or down. Other currencies, all things equal, move in the opposite direction reciprocally because of it. So the dollar is rising and all other currencies, except a few examples, uh, are going uh, 
you know, in the opposite direction. They they are declining, deflating. And that's true with uh, uh, the euro. It's true with uh, the Japan yen. Uh, but with the euro, it's especially sharp drop because the, everyone knows that uh, its uh, economy is, is really going to take a whack. It's already very weak. It's already entering recession in many cases. Um, and it's really going to contract here uh, over the winter. And that weakens the currency even more. Plus, when the currency is, is declining um, – you know, no one wants to buy euros uh, for trade purposes. You know, it's a little bit of a global currency uh, because who wants to hold a currency that's falling in value? You just lose profits, right, on paper. Uh, so that's another reason why the euro is is declining. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a, a lot more decline. How much it can decline, it's almost a parity now. You know, that's like a 20% drop. Uh, that's a big drop, 20 percent. Uh, that means, uh, you know, uh, Europeans are going to have to pay 20 percent more when they import stuff from elsewhere around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, their, their currency is really undermined uh, as a result. Uh, falling currencies are not good. Uh, you know, for economic uh, stability. And uh, Europe is one of those that is falling the, the most. Uh, you know, ironically, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Russian ruble is rising uh, because its revenue is rising because of the sanctions that are driving up the price of its industrial commodities that it sells around the world. And the same with the China yuan, you know. I mean, it's pretty stable, uh, drifting up a little bit. Uh, but uh, you know the the yen uh, and 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 the euro are are in deep deep trouble because the dollar is rising, and the dollar is rising because of inflation. Uh, so um, you know what happens in the U.S. Uh, uh, really reverberates everywhere around the world, and uh, as the U.S. becomes more unstable economically and exports that instability, that inflation, and that unemployment. Um, it makes things worse for the rest of the world. Talking about inflation, the Bank of England raises rates sharply and warns of 13% inflation by the end of the year. And this is from the Financial Times. Britain faces a protracted recession and the worst squeeze in living standards in more than 60 years after the Bank of England raised interest rates sharply and forecast inflation would hit 13% by the end of the year. Your thoughts... Dr. Jack, and does what's happening in England, is that a leading indicator of what could happen in the United States, or is it a lagging indicator of what is happening in the United States? Well, you know, uh, Britain's a basket case economically, <laughs> and as you said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse. And I think that's going to, uh, we can already see signs of pr provoking uh, uh, union labor unrest and demands to catch up with the, with the conditions, which will exacerbate the inflation even further. Uh, so in that sense, it's a leading uh, indicator for what's coming in the United States. And you can already see it on, on, the, on the labor front, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, in Canada, there's a lot of uh, imminent potential strikes by transport workers, railroad workers, which are already striking in Britain. Uh, and you got longshore workers uh, contracts, um, you know, underway right now. And next year, you got Teamsters. Uh, so we could see a, a whole rash of uh, transport workers strikes here uh, in, in response to try to protect their members uh, from the deterioration going on. Uh, but Britain, you know, I mean, 
Britain is, you know, without its empire, is a basket case right now. Uh, and it's only going to get worse. It's one of the, the weak sisters, I think, in, in all of Europe. Uh, and we'll see what happens, uh, you know, to its financial system, which is about all it's got to offer anymore. There's another interesting piece. I find this to be very interesting and very telling. Sanctions on Russia could leave Britain without fish and chips. Around 5,000 of Britain's 10,500 fish and chip shops may be forced to shut down over soaring prices for ingredients and energy caused by the sanctions. The chippers were already under pressure, but the situation has become even worse after the authorities decided to slap a 35% tariff on seafood from Russia. Dr. Jack. Well, you know, you're going to see a lot of uh, uh, consumer-based industries in Europe here in the next six months uh, uh, really in, in big trouble because of the imports that they have to get, not just the energy imports, but, you know, you're talking here even about fish. Uh, you know, maybe they'll, they'll find, um, you know, some alternative sources for some of these, uh, these basic goods that they got to have. You know, that's possible. But that will only uh, increase the competition and the demand for these alternative sources worldwide and raise their prices even further. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems on supply side that uh, these sanctions really create, and not not just industrial commodities, but also on on the consumer side. Uh, and uh, you know, that problem's only just begun, and people are going to be really upset. Absolutely, uh, when they they can't buy the basic things that they really need and used to be, used to have. I mean, like in Germany, they're, they're telling the Germans, uh, "Oh, gas prices are going to be so high, uh, you should only take one shower a week." You know. How do you think that's going to go over? <laughs> it's not going to smell that good. I can tell you that. And as we get out, that was really why I brought this up was the fact that these are fundamental elements of culture that are now being threatened. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Yeah, can I just say if people want an in-depth, hour-long uh, uh, dissecting of these jobs report, just the next couple of days, check out my blog, jackrasmus.com, at which my uh, radio show will uh, be posted. Jackrasmus.com, jackrasmus.com. Thanks, Jack. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Gardner Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It's now being reported U.S. Health Secretary declares monkeypox is a public health emergency. The declaration comes as officials scramble to boost access to monkeypox treatments and vaccines amid rising case counts. How serious of a problem is this for the U.S. and for those traveling abroad? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist, and she's a public health expert with a telemedicine practice at AskDrYola.com, Dr. Yolandra Hancock. As always, Dr. Hancock, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra 
declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency yesterday in an effort to galvanize awareness and unlock additional flexibility and funding to fight the virus's spread. Before I speak to Dr. Hancock, the physician, I'd like to speak with Dr. Hancock, the public health expert. Yeah. So, Put your public health expert hat on, and as you look at the numbers, what does the data tell you about monkeypox in the U.S.? The data tells me that, as my grandmother would say, the horse is already out of the barn. Just last week, we had around 2,300 monkeypox cases, documented monkeypox cases. As of today, we have 7,100 monkeypox cases. So we have almost tripled the number of cases that we had from last week to this week. What that tells me from a public health standpoint is that we're doing a piss poor job of reducing transmission of monkeypox. We lead the globe in terms of monkeypox cases and in the District of Columbia, DC actually leads our country in terms of monkeypox cases. I like am excited that we finally declared a public health emergency, but we knew monkeypox had arrived here in this country back in May. So my question is, why did it take almost three months for us to put a system in place to address this growing epidemic? We, the United States, leads the globe in monkeypox cases, and the District of Columbia leads the country in monkeypox cases. Let me ask you this. I've been seeing a few things lately that said this is very demographic specific right now that well over 99, I've seen numbers as high as 99.1% of the cases are in the MSM, men who have sex with men category. What, I don't know, you're, you know, you know this stuff. When something is in such a very specific category, are there things that you do differently? You know, what should people, those of us who aren't in that category, should we have less concern? You know what I'm asking? That's a very specific category. What do you think about that? We have to be very careful when we sort of group together the highest at-risk population. We've done this before with HIV. It was assumed to be a quote-unquote gay disease until African-American women led the country in terms of the percentage of us who were HIV positive at the peak of the pandemic, of the peak of that what truly was a pandemic. We know that somewhere between 98 and 99% of those in the country who are dealing with monkeypox now are men. Now, the majority of those men are in the MSM population. But what we also have to understand is that where a virus or an infection originated does not mean that that's where it's going to stay. Back with COVID, it was individuals who had traveled to Asia or had been around someone who had traveled to Asia And then it was all of us, right? We have to be very careful of how we sort of categorize who is at highest risk. We know that even within the MSN population, these are our brothers, our nephews, our sons, even for some, in some cases, our significant others. Just because it started in that population does not mean that that's where it will end. We are all at risk. What we have to really think through is where, you know, with sexual transmission, that's where monkeypox first started happening within this country, which is why the predominance of cases right now are within that population with that mode of transmission. But if we do not pay attention to the fact that coming into close contact with someone with monkeypox, sharing space with uh, exposure to respiratory droplets, I'm talking kissing, cuddling, anything that puts you in direct contact with the skin of someone who has monkeypox puts us 
all at risk, not to mention the fact that we do know that there is a small risk of aerosolization of monkeypox, where even if you are in direct contact with someone, skin-to-skin contact, you are still at risk if you are in a room where someone has monkeypox. We're all at risk. We all have to take action to protect ourselves. My understanding is so far there's been one death outside of Africa, and so that's the other thing I think. For instance, as I said, okay, so the probabilities could change, Mm -hmm. certainly, of the demographics. But if one person has died outside of Africa of monkeypox, and I'm in the 0.0 or, say, 1% range, worst-case scenario, then it still doesn't seem to be that there's a lot of high probability of death. Okay, again, I'm throwing out some things, probabilities. What are your thoughts? Right, but it isn't just a matter of dying. And actually, we have had now five people who have died from monkeypox since this outbreak began. It now is in 83 countries. And here, uh, we now know of at least three children who have had monkeypox. And I bring that up because children don't have access to the vaccine. If you're 18 and older, you can get the vaccine. If you've been exposed to decrease your risk. If you have monkeypox, you can get the vaccine to decrease your symptoms. It isn't simply about the risk of death. That was the argument made with COVID. Well, 98% of people don't die from COVID. Only 2% of the population dies from COVID. Well, that 2% is still a very significant number now that over 1 million people in this country alone have lost their lives to COVID. It isn't just death. It's morbidity. The fact that you're sick, You've got all these bumps all over your face. You don't know if you're having an acne breakout or monkeypox at this point. Those are the, the concerns that we're dealing with right now. If someone is out with monkeypox, they have to be in isolation for at minimum 21 days. What does that look like for you financially if you are out of work and exhaust your sick days? So we have to think about this from a public health standpoint, not just from a death standpoint, but from all of the ways in which it will impact us, not to mention the fact that pregnant women you know, compromised individuals and children have more severe experiences with monkeypox. We have to think about all of those vulnerable communities as well. So I want to quickly just go back to the men having sex with men point to make the point that this is not about that specific community. It's about behavior Mm -hmm. and it's about skin on skin contact and how the behavior is perpetuating the virus. It's not the specific community. Absolutely. That is absolutely the best way to describe that. It isn't about the community. It's about what, how monkeypox is transmitted. So Secretary Bracera says, we're prepared to take our response to the next level in addressing this virus, and we urge every American to take monkeypox seriously and to take responsibility to help us tackle the virus. He said this yesterday. So when he says prepared to take the response to the next level, what is that next level? What does this entail? The next level should have been about a month and a half before this point, right? The next level is making sure that we have equitable access to vaccinations. Uh, right now, in, just in the state of Maryland, we were given 3,000 doses of monkeypox vaccine. In Prince George's County alone, we make up 1 million of the individuals in the state of Maryland. Across the country, we have around 500,000 doses of monkeypox vaccine available. Currently, there are at least a million people who have been at risk for exposure to monkeypox. We don't even have enough to give a first dose, let alone the dual dose that's required to be protected against monkeypox. So when he says that, I'm wondering, 
where, where is he getting his vaccine? Because everyone is speculating that we will not have an increase in the vaccine access, in our vaccine access until later on next month. What does this look like later on next month in terms of spread? The one bit of good news is that when it comes to infectivity, monkeypox is much less infectious than COVID. So with original COVID-19, one person could infect five. With the current BA.5 variant, one person can infect up to 15. With monkeypox, it's almost a one-to-one ratio. One person can infect about 1.3 individuals. So that's our saving grace is that it is not as infectious as something like COVID. But still, if we do not have access to the vaccine and to treatment, and then what we're going to do for our children when they're exposed, we haven't even talked about the fact that little ones are getting ready to go back to school. And if any of you have ever dealt with children with either chicken pox or Coxsackie, hand, foot, and mouth, you know how easily those viruses can be spread. This will be no different because little ones are in each other's faces all of the time, especially in the face of schools no longer requiring masks. So let me just quickly follow up on the men having sex with men question. And why is it happening now? Were there some seasonal events that impacted this and brought us to where we are now? Certainly. What happened when we saw sort of the, the, the arrival of monkeypox, it happened in the same time with a lot of festivals that were taking place. We know that Pride Month was back in June. And, you know, there was a lot of activity happening in Pride Month because, one, we did not hear a lot about monkeypox at that time. We are just now learning about the concentration of monkeypox in the MSM population. But back in May, even in the beginning of June, there was not a lot of buzz, even though we saw in other countries outside of the United States that monkeypox had already arrived and was causing infections. We did not take appropriate action. Dr. Hancock, you mentioned chickenpox that brought a question to mind, and that is, mm-hmm. what's the difference between chickenpox and monkeypox? And if somebody looks, I mean, chickenpox is still out there. Somebody, their kid or whoever comes home and they see bumps on them, how will we know the difference? Can we tell the difference looking between chickenpox and monkeypox? And what is the difference, you know, clinically? Very good question. So the difference between chickenpox and monkeypox, just from a public health standpoint, is that there's a pediatric vaccine available for chickenpox. One of the reasons why we have not seen chickenpox infecting and affecting great portions of children is because the majority of children, at least for right now, are vaccinated against it. The difference between monkeypox and chickenpox is the transmissibility. Chickenpox is much more easily transmissible than monkeypox. And again, thankfully, because we have a vaccine, we see minimal um, presentation of chickenpox. From a visual standpoint, with monkeypox, we're seeing a variety of presentations. With chickenpox, it's pretty standard. You'll, it'll look like someone has taken a red marker and put it all over your face, little polka dots all over your face. And then those polka dots become blister, very, very itchy blisters. If any of you ever had chickenpox, you know that your mother would bathe you in calamine lotion and you'd be doped up on some Benadryl because it's such an incredibly itchy rash. It looks almost like dew has dropped on your skin. With monkeypox, we're seeing presentations like um, those horrible pustules that you've likely seen pictures of, where it's like almost like a really bad acne breakout, but except all over the body. That's like the extreme version of it. Minimally, we've seen people come in with just a couple of pox. Some people will have like pox only in their eyes, pox only um, in areas where the skin came into direct contact. It's also sort of showing up as a great imitator, very similar to syphilis, where you may only have an ulcer on the tip of your penis. That ends up being monkeypox. You have to, we have to know, like, 
where you've been, what contact you've made with other individuals, so that we have a clear sense of what the likelihood of you having monkeypox is. Thankfully, we now have testing capacity. There's a PCR test through Quest and LabCorp to allow us to test for monkeypox so that we're able to identify it sooner um, with Chicken pox for us, it's pretty bread and butter. Once a child walks in with it, we pretty much know what it is. But now that monkeypox has arrived, it is not as straightforward. Children will also likely need to be tested. So as we wrap up this part of the conversation, Dr. Hancock, is there concern that this focus on monkeypox will take our eye off the COVID ball? I honestly believe that it will. We will. I, I always say you can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can manage through um, two infectious diseases at once, but we have to have the resources. We can't wait until we're leading the globe in monkeypox cases to then identify someone who is going to coordinate the efforts. The minute we saw globally monkeypox numbers going up, there should have been resources lined up for us to address it. My biggest concern is that because our attention is going to be directed towards monkeypox, that COVID-19, as children particularly are going back into school, is going to fall by the wayside. A lot of the resources that we know were available through Health and Human Services have gone away because of a lack of funding. What is this going to look like going into the fall, knowing that there is some seasonality to COVID-19, and we can anticipate that numbers will go up? We haven't seen what the impact of the BA.2.75 variant is going to be. We are just now coming out of the BA.5 impact. We don't know if there's going to be another surge, especially as we're entering into this new academic year. Which brings us to the new academic year is the perfect segue. D.C. schools expand COVID vaccine mandate. So what they're doing in D.C. is, you know, kids over, I think, 12 years old are going to have to have mm-hmm. the COVID vaccine in order to attend school. Now, I've got a number of issues with that, not the least of which being it's going to have the most pronounced effect on people of color and their schooling. But the other right. being... I always have to think long term. And if I have a plan, I want to be able to enact it long term, knowing that the efficacy of the shot wears off in three to six months. Long term would mean every three to six months that every child has to get it for the next 12 years. Otherwise, it's a waste of time because you're saying, okay, for the first three to six months, but then the next 11 and a half years, you don't have to do it. And I mean, to think this thing through, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But at any rate, your thought on those two issues. You know, the first issue that you raised, I completely agree with. You know, D.C. prides itself in having 85 percent of students in the 12 to 15 year old age group being vaccinated against the virus. But you have to look at that based on racial demographics when you tease it out by race only 60% of black children in that age group are vaccinated against COVID-19. That leaves a good 40% of our children without having a vaccine being at risk for not being able to return to school. We pair that with parents who are still concerned about the efficacy and safety of the vaccine. And to your point, we know that based on current data, the immune response wears down somewhere between three to five months on average around four months. If that is the case, then what that means is that right smack dab in January, children are going to have to have a booster. So then the the question is, is DCPS then going to require a booster, even though it has not yet been approved uh, from from an FDA standpoint, are they going to be required to get a booster? And then how many boosters are they going to be required to have if you get the booster in January, then does that mean that they also then need to get a booster in May? Because in order for them to be fully protected based on the CDC's current guidelines, that would be what it looks like. To your point, I think that people really have to think this through to navigate 
what should parents anticipate? What you do not want parents to do is rush to get their kids vaccinated. And then, oh, by the way, no, no booster is required. Well, then what was the purpose of having them vaccinated at the beginning of the potential season of COVID when in actuality they are better protected as we go into the winter months? I honestly think that all of those conversations need to be had so that we can address those issues and parents can come into the academic year more confident if they do decide to get their children vaccinated, knowing what the rest of the school year is going to look like. And so you're talking about a difference. 85% of students between 12 and 15 have been vaccinated, but that rate drops to 60% when you parse it out by ethnicity with 60% of black children. The article says, and this is true, if the city does not close that gap, but strictly enforces the mandate, then what you wind up with is a disproportionately large number of black kids will wind up sitting out part of the academic year because they haven't been vaccinated. That's something that has to be dealt with, worked through, and fixed. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Global Times has a piece, Pelosi provocation over Taiwan leads U.S., the world into age of disorder and instability. Martin Jacques has written this piece. Donald Trump's election as U.S. president in November marked the end of over four decades of relative stability in the U.S.-China relations. Ever since, it's been downhill all the way with barely a pause. For insight into this, let's turn to our first panel. It's Friday, so it's panel time. We're joined by the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And as always, Steve, welcome back. Great to be here, Wilmer. Thank you. And we're joined by a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Martin continues the huge uncertainty surrounding the much-mooted visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan this week summed up the present highly charged and intensely volatile nature of U.S.-China relations. It is a salutary fact that neither President Xi nor Joe Biden knew whether that visit would actually go ahead. This is a very dangerous situation. Let me start with you, Steve Poikin, and I find it interesting that they take this all the way back to, and I didn't really think about it in this context until I read the piece, that the instability really started, this challenge to the one-China policy really started under Donald Trump. Well, it it did, and it was almost a bait-and-switch on Trump's part, who was at the time going through the patent process to the tune of uh, dozens and dozens of his own personal and his family's businesses. Uh, but the, the neocons and the foreign policy hawks have been itching for this. So when they saw an opportunity to ratchet up rhetoric on China, they jumped for it to the point now to where— Nancy Pelosi deserves to go to 
with Taiwan is an applause line spoken by Newt Gingrich at a uh, America first policy dinner. Like a Trump, you know, a Trump oriented group dinner. Nancy Pelosi making this trip is now an applause line. This is how far uh, the the Democrats have shifted in terms of their foreign policy, at least openly. They've always kind of kept it behind closed doors, but this is completely brazen. We're now at a moment where Henry Kissinger is to the left of the entire Biden administration. And I, judging by the recent NATO vote, all of the Democrats in Congress. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, she's a hero of the right of the Republicans now, uh, big hero of the Republicans. And, it, you know, it sets everything in, in, in perspective. You know, the, a lot of Trumpers like to think, oh, Donald Trump didn't want any wars, didn't want any conflicts. You know, he didn't get us into any wars. He, the Republicans and Donald Trump are after China. They were after North Korea. They're very dangerous. And they, besides what they, you know, they, they didn't get us out of any wars in the Middle East and still occupying Syria. But this shows you that the Republicans... And the Democrats are not going to disagree fundamentally on these red line issues of war and peace and imperialism, essentially. You know, and the the, the framework that was set in 1992 that the United States was not going to allow anybody in any region to to, to rise and exclude American dominance or preempt American dominance in in every region of the world is still in place. And this is what Nancy Pelosi has acted on the basis of. And the Republicans are cheering her on and. The Democrats really can't say anything against her. You know, all the progressives and everything. Well, you know, just Drew Kana. Of course, she has the right to go to Taiwan. What, 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 what right do the Chinese have to do to tell her not to go to Taiwan? So, you know, it's just it's a very good demonstration of the bipartisan nation of American imperialism. Let me add this. I think you got to go further back to I'm with Jim. I go back to the Wolf of Witch Doctrine during the Bush administration. That's at the foundation of it. Then you have to go to Barack Obama, who was the president when they did the pivot to Asia. I would argue that Trump just picked up the baton from Barack Obama. But that being said, Steve, let me go to this. You know, we're hearing, well, the Chinese lost on this one. Well, in the short, immediate, based on Somebody threw a punch and somebody didn't throw a punch back. You could make that argument. But when you look at South Korea, where the South Korean president pretty much ran with horror when Nancy Pelosi showed up and you see other Asian countries starting to recoil in fear, I think the dynamic that it created is not going to benefit the U.S.'s attempt to build some kind of an Asian NATO or or Asian alliance. Your thoughts? No, no, they're absolutely not. But let's also keep into consideration that there was a, a significant stock dump on behalf of Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, in the uh, silicon manufacturing chip company, NVIDIA, right before this trip. Stock in um, uh what is it? Uh, TMSC or TSMC it was Taiwan's largest silicon chip manufacturer went down uh, as soon as Pelosi touched ground in Taipei. 
there is a significant insider trading and a significant financial grift that has taken place around this entire trip that the vast portion of the media has overlooked on all of this. This is as the vote comes up in Congress, the, I guess the kangaroo vote, they're going to be kangaroo courts, might as well be a, like a kangaroo Congress with a kangaroo vote on insider trading uh, that's coming up. Jim, we're seeing, you know, of course, as I said, the South Korean president running. We're seeing a lot of Asian countries start to back off saying, man, we don't want chaos and instability in our area. If you just look at it from, OK, the U.S. pushed and China didn't push back, you can make the argument that the U.S. got some kind of a symbolic victory. If you look at the Russia-China alliance getting closer, if you look at the China-North Korea alliance getting closer, there's some other dynamics through which you can view this that, in long term, I don't think it's going to benefit the U.S., Jim Cavanaugh. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, anybody who thought that China was going to shoot down Pelosi's plane, I mean, they're not stupid. You know, and they don't really want World War III, and they don't need it. You know, what they did was, it's not like they have them pushed back or punched back. They, they having now live fire drills surrounding the island of Taiwan with no you know, asking for permission, right? They're showing Taiwan, we can encircle you anytime we want. They're imposing sanctions, including sanctions on Pelosi and her family. <laughs> Nobody in Pelosi's family can, can invest in anything in China anymore. And, and they're imposing sanctions on Taiwan. Manufa they're, they're stopping the import, the export from China to Taiwan of the sand that's necessary to make silicon chips. So they're punching back, and they have a lot, thousand ways of doing that. And as you say, and as everybody saw, the South Korean president ran away as fast as he could. I got, I'm too busy to beat with Pelosi. There were demonstrations in Taiwan, five or six of the parties in Taiwan, including the Kuomintang, <laughs> protested against Pelosi because they see this as threatening to them as destabilizing to them the other asian countries the european countries are like what is this what are we now what are we now going to begin getting into we're getting into a war with china now and nobody asked us about that and not only did not ask us about it it seems like you joe biden the president of the united states didn't even know about this couldn't even control it so this is something which demonstrates you know the instability and incoherence of american leadership and the fact that the people who go along with it are in danger of being pulled into a lot of nonsense and a lot of dangerous crap that they have no interest in. Steve, to Jim's point about Biden not knowing, that I think shows an incredible level of weakness on his part. As the commander in chief, he could have called the Pentagon and told him, don't give her the plane because she went on a military transport. As the head of uh, diplomacy in this country, he could have told her on behalf of the State Department, you're not going. As the head of the Democratic Party, he could have told her, you're not going. But he just throws up his hands and says, well, I don't really know a whole lot about this trip. That, to me, shows an incredibly weak and feckless Joe Biden. Well, it shows that Joe Biden... That, that isn't being told what's going on in his administration. It shows that there. I, we've seen him be pulled away from reporters. We've seen him be cut off. It, there's only certain things now that Joe is being, he's being managed. This happened at the end of Reagan's presidency too. It, this is the, the open handling of Joe Biden on full display. Yeah, it's hard to deny at this point that he's in significant cognitive decline. 
So I think the the his, the people around him, his staff, are really honestly just trying to do the best they can and keep him from saying something truly dumb. Jim, and to add one more point to what I just put to Steve, you mentioned the fact that, you know, you said China didn't shoot her plane down and they didn't. But one reason that China didn't shoot her plane down was because she took an incredibly circuitous route to get to Taipei. She didn't fly over the South China Sea, which would have been the most direct route for her to take. She went north to go south and then went west to go east. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you got to run all around the mulberry bush. It's it's crazy. I mean, but but yeah, as uh you know, Steve was saying this is this everything. It's so circuitous and so incoherent. And you know, I saw in fact today about I think it was or yesterday Jerry Nadler even came out saying I'm not I'm not endorsing Biden for for second part. So even the establishment Democrats are starting to say you know we've got to find someone else besides Joe Biden just for that point. But yeah, I mean, this is just there was no point to this except to. I don't know, do something which got for her the applause of the Republicans and, you know, the applause of the uh, reactionary media and to uh, stick something in China's eye, in Xi's eye, I mean, which is not going to help anybody. So it's kind of a uh, it wasn't a thought out foreign policy initiative. uh, And, you know, it, it doesn't do anything but ridiculize the United States again in the in the eyes of the world. Steve, there's an interesting article. Russia may offer assistance to China if it is asked, according to a Russian senior lawmaker. Let's talk about some the fallout regarding alliances. It certainly appears that the you know worst case scenario for the former Cold War leaders was China Russia coming together. It looks like you can certainly add North Korea to that, and there are strengthening alignments. The winner of this Taiwan trip is the Russia China alliance. Steve. Oh, absolutely. We were talking about this on AM Wake Up this morning and yesterday with Dr. Naomi Wolf has a very, very different take on this than than I do. Uh, But I think the one thing that, that we've all come to an agreement on is that there is a true partnership among the BRICS nations now that did not exist in the incarnation that it does currently and will going forward where there's a a you know um an understanding that we all have each other's back on this and we're going to to be there for one another and how many times gentlemen have i said by this time next year it's going to be oceana was always at war with with eurasia that's where we're at we're we're right here right now with with these alliances taking shape not because they can't be avoided but because there are some bullheaded hubris driven incompetence who for some reason are they're following a very different book and their book says do all of the wrong things out loud on purpose in very predictable ways in front of everyone and then act surprised jim you're talking about putting the world's leading commodities country and probably the world's most advanced military technology or at least equal to the united states at minimum with the world's leading industrial engine. We're driving those two together. That's an alliance that's going to, to be quite frank, dwarf the United States. Your thoughts, Jim? Yeah, I mean, they have succeeded in creating an enemy 
that they cannot possibly overtake. You know, and this is, again, as Steve says and everybody's saying, this was one of the, you know, the, the, the objectives of the Kissinger strategy was to divide Russia and China. And now we have, you know, at least you had an intelligent imperialism. Now you have, you know, it, because they know that's going to happen anyway. And, and, and they, they're trying to get ahead of it in some way and scare people off now and, and keep on and, and bully people away from that. But it's not working. It's doing the opposite. It's creating the knowledge in Russia. We're, we don't care what you sanction us because we know you're you going to sanction us no matter what we do in Ukraine. In, you, in Iran, you're going to sanction – we want to go back to JCPOA, but you know what? We know we're going to, you're going to sanction us no matter what, whether in the JCPOA or not. So we're, we're tired of playing this game, and they're saying we now have to depend on each other. We have to find a way. All of these countries, they see that the United States will steal their sovereign wealth if they, do so, if they don't go along with the American program. So they have to find a way of supporting each other economically and militarily if necessary. And it was really it was a striking thing that the, the, the Russians said. We said, we will, in principle, they're not making any concrete commitments, but they're signaling something to the United States, which is we, we, you might be faced with a military alliance between us and China. We're not opposed to that at all. That's on the table for us. So it's a, you know the Americans are are by demonstrating by being a bully, they're 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 calling the the, the people they're bullying are calling the bluff and saying you you, you got your flint your, your fist clenched. What are you going to do now? Uh, we we all of us are here to fight back against you. And that piece right there, Steve, I think is incredibly important and is being overlooked by a lot of folks because in this task piece, Russia may offer assistance to China. Vladimir Zabarov, first deputy chairman of the International Committee of the Russian Federal Council, says, I see no grounds to refuse to help China, but I would like to see a two-way movement with China. It means that we should have some benefits from this cooperation. In principle, there is nothing impossible. We understand that sometimes it is a game of chance and a conflict may grow into a big war. But I think that China is behaving very cautiously in this sense. What I take from that is we're not afraid of a fight. Oh. And that's that's not something that you want Russia saying in as they talk about backing up China. Sometimes it's a game of chance and a conflict may grow into a big war and I'm not afraid of that. That's a bad day in Mudville. Steve Poikinen. It really is. And there's, it's not the, the whole dugouts full of Casey's the whole dugout. <laughs> it's the whole squad. Casey's the whole squad, gentlemen. It's not, it's not great. It's not when, 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 uh, you know, the chairman uh, of the Russian Federation Council is saying, OK, look, things happen and and we're we're here for our, you know, we're here for China, uh, but we're expecting this to be a two way relationship. What everybody in foreign policy is hearing is we are openly working out deals with China right now for what this future East Asia partnership looks like. And what that what we're going to what kind of, you know, uh, uh, economic 
uh, model we're going to go for, what kind of future we can look for going forward from that, because we've all talked about this. The BRICS nations have all the real resources and they have the resource based economy. And that's what's going to power the Internet. That's what's supposed to power the Internet of Things. So uh, we're, you know, we're going to be at a, a crossroads over that very, very soon. Uh, Jim, if you add this too, there's another article. So they're saying, look, you know, we may need to work with China when it comes to military issues. There's another article that says the age of Russia West cooperation is over. Now add that. Here's the other thing too. If you look at Russia recently saying the U.S. is involved directly in Ukraine, in a way, what I hear is this. The U.S., in, a, in an instance where we're involved in a military operation, the U.S. and their vassals are right there providing any and everything needed for the other side. If the U.S. gets involved in something, we'll do the same. Is that a wrong interpretation, uh, Jim Cavanaugh? Well, they have, you know, they're being careful. Look, the United States is involved in Ukraine. They're providing intelligence, they're providing targeting, they're providing weapons. And these and the Ukrainians are telling us that that they cannot use these high Mars artillery weapons without consulting first with the United States, which which signs off on their targets, which means the United States signed off on Ukraine shelling their own prisoners of war in, in Donetsk with these high Mars systems. So the, the Russia knows that the United States is involved in this. China knows there are American troops in China in, in Taiwan. What are they doing in Taiwan? So they're not afraid of it, <laughs> you know, and the Americans have got to be a little careful of not going, not being too obvious and not going too, too full on in because they're telling the United States, we will match you. And they've matched them. You, you want to send these weapons to Ukraine? Go ahead. We'll blow them all up. <laughs> you know, that's what they're doing. And, you know, this is literally what Putin said. You want to fight? Come on. <laughs> I mean, that's the situation we're in now. And so, as I say, this this bullying attitude that the United States has had, where it could pick off the, the the weaker ones and the little ones, and it would, could use the weapons it has, its big economic muscles, especially, and 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 say, you know, threaten and, and and intimidate people. It's no longer working in the same way. They're saying we've 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 gone through that. We've heard it. We've done it. We know how to deal with that, and we're not we're not facing you one at a time. We're facing you all together as necessary. So. It's a, it's, it's a new world. It's a new world order that has started, and we don't know exactly where it's going, but the, 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 the people, who, the, the nations that are building it are no longer as afraid. That is, once you lose the fear, you're, you're halfway there. There's an interesting piece in Orinoco Tribune, Steve. Polls show almost no one trusts U.S. media after decades of war propaganda and lies. Very few people in the U.S. trust the mainstream corporate media. This is confirmed by a July survey from the major polling firm Gallup, which found that just 11 percent of Americans trust television news and a mere 16 percent have confidence in newspapers. What say you, Steve Poikinen? I would say that that we have finally entered the era where uh, what is mainstream news includes a number of of uh, online publications, um, the Joe Rogan podcast, 
uh, a, a number of these where where Joe Rogan is getting three, four times the views as Tucker Carlson, where uh, an outlet like The Hill has their star uh, star attraction in Kim Iverson leave due to being cut out of being able to to participate in an interview uh, that we are seeing what is the mainstream media morph into the the digital sphere and that the parameters of what are and are not allowable conversation are no longer going to solely be determined by network media but rather by uh the most popular podcast in on the planet uh as well as the the satellite entities from those major networks including the hill that's what i would say jim yeah, well, of course, you know, mainstream media and the corporate media have lied time and again. So why should anybody trust them? You know, they acknowledge that they've lied, even about the Ukraine thing. They acknowledge, you know, that that they don't really know what they're talking about. And they're taking the word of uh, of Kiev, and they don't really have uh, any – they're, they're reporting things as true without really confirming them. So that's been going on even just now in this most important – context in the in the ukraine war so and for certainly for you know decades they've known that mainstream media has lied at the behest of the government really in order not to embarrass the government so that's why they have you know as as steve says all of these new digital platforms have more uh, a bigger audience but that's why the governments are trying their best to clamp down on it to prevent to to control the social media platforms as much as possible to institute a form of effective censorship. And it's, I don't think it's working very well, but it's, it's dangerous and it's hurting a lot of people. And it, it threatens to, to, you know, certainly with something like the, uh, uh, that starts and ends in some sense with the, the most important instantiation of this is the persecution of Assange. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's a dangerous thing that we're in the middle of because there, again, it's, it's, it's people who are used to controlling everything, trying to fight against the upstarts who are coming forward and who are effectively challenging that control. Uh, another interesting article, the Black Alliance for Peace condemns the FBI attack on the African People's Socialist Party. And we see an organization that's been in operation pretty much doing the same thing for the last 50 years. And suddenly the U.S. FBI shows up, beats down their door of unarmed people, puts guns in their faces, handcuffs them, et cetera, takes their stuff. Nobody's been charged with a crime. Nobody's been accused of any crime. It seems to me just a crackdown on a left-leaning organization who opposed the U.S.'s position on the Ukraine special operation. Let's start with your thoughts on it, Steve Porkinen. Well, this this is uh, the continuation of COINTEL Pro. I think you and I even talked about this the other day, Garland. It, it's the exact same methods. It's the exact same uh, uh, agency. It's the same uh, the the same type of smears. They're still using the exact same playbook, gentlemen. It's still the Russians. They're still coming to destabilize uh, our fair nation. And wouldn't you know it? They're using the the black radicals to do it. A handful of years back, they included black identity extremists as a group of, of terrorists in the U.S., and it's been sort of a witch hunt to find any organization 
uh, and it's very hard to do so, that fits any of their own very loosely defined parameters of what a black identity extremist organization is. So they're trying everything, coming up with nothing and legitimately quieting uh, uh, any sort of, um, you know, purposeful activism in that sphere. Uh, Jim. Yeah, this is this. Yeah, this is extremely dangerous. I mean, what is this about? As you say, there are there charges here. They're implying that one of the leaders of this group is a is a Russian agent. Is this Russia Russia Gate? You know, to the extreme, coming home on the street. You know, and everybody could see this coming. And and it's coming after you know a, a left wing organization, a black organization, a black militant socialist organization. You know, and everybody who's involved in this January sixth business. You know, seven year. Uh, uh, sentences for showing up at a demonstration, you know, this is, this is dangerous stuff and this is where it's going to go. You know, they want to put down, they're looking for ways to get at, and they have ways to get at. They have the police, as you say, they've been doing this for decades. You know, it's, it's McCarthyism, it's Russiagate, it's COINTELPRO. And they're just now, it's kind of amazing to me that they did this with this organization, but who's saying a word about it? The, 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 the progressives and the Democrats and the squaddies have all gone along with this January 6th stuff. And anybody who threatens the uh, stability of the United States or whatever, you know, we have to go, we have to vigorously enforce them and raid their homes. This is what's going on now. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And to that point, most of the quote unquote fact checking organizations Facebook uses in Ukraine are directly funded by Washington. Think about that, Steve Poikin, and most of the fact-checking organizations Facebook has partnered with to monitor and regulate information are directly funded by the U.S. government and are also staffed by ex-CIA folks, either through the U.S. Embassy or via the notorious National Endowment for Democracy. We have just about a minute, Steve Poikinen. Uh, well, I, it's no surprise to people who have been victims of this censorship, like we all have, gentlemen, over the last several years. Uh, it is kind of uh, uh, vindicating to see it in print again like this. Um, but it, it underscores the dangerousness of, of state-run media, and it should hopefully highlight the significance of uh, yeah, organizations like Mempress for going and doing the work on this and independent media in general, adversarial independent media specifically. Steve Poikinen and Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Enjoy your weekends. Look forward to having you back. Oh, thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. On July 29th, the FBI raided the Uhuru House in St. Petersburg, Florida, and the Uhuru Solidarity Center in St. Louis. The raids were connected with the indictment of a Russian national who was accused of attempting to, quote, cause turmoil in the United States, end quote, by engaging with unindicted co-conspirators to act as agents of the Russian Federation. 
what's really underlying all of this and how concerned should we be? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next panel. We're joined by a published book author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. John Jeter, as always, John, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor and a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. So, John Jeter, let me start with you. The FBI raiding the Uhuru House, they are alleged to have been engaging with Russian agents is this old wine in new bottles, or is this old wine in old bottles? Well, I would start by saying that uh, Mark Twain was famously incorrect when he said history uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. I think it repeats itself. I think this is uh, the 1920 Palmer raids uh, uh, all over again, uh, the FBI raids on leftist uh, because they were afraid of the Russian Revolution spreading to the United States. I think this is the same thing. Uh, ironically, though, I think uh, it's very interesting that the Palmer raids in 1920 were uh, the sort of a harbinger of the sh- of, of things to come uh, uh, that attended uh, the first, the early stages of capitalism. Now what we're seeing are the is late stage capitalism, this sort of desperation to keep the genie in the bottle. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd, the idea that the African Socialist Party would have anything to do with some sort of communist plot. Well, actually, the idea that there is a communist plot to sort of overthrow America is ridiculous. Uh, and the second that the African Socialist Party would have anything to do with it, uh, is even more ridiculous. So this, to me, is uh, not. Uh, this is almost uh, almost predictable, right? As silly as it is, it's almost predictable in the United States that they respond to a crisis with, uh, as as James as James Baldwin said, you know, America sees safety uh, in the form of corpses and chains. So uh, that's what we're that's what we're experiencing right now. Dr. Colin Campbell, your thoughts. Yeah, I wasn't surprised by this, and I'm almost shocked that it doesn't happen more often. When we look at just some of the news coverage over the past few years, especially when it came to the Trump administration just before he was elected, or or at least soon after he had won victory, it was discovered that there were some uh, Russian... Uh, there was some Russian interference using black-centric websites as uh, to spread propaganda. Now, that story soon after died out. I think so. There might be a connection there, but I think what is more important, definitely more salient, and definitely more substantive, if you do that when, when one does the research on it, is the government's use of its resources to crack down on the speech of black activism. There's obviously a historic record of this um, under Edgar Hoover. And we know in recent memory, in recent years, there was a sharp focus on black, what were called black identity extremists. And Sessions, the attorney general at the time before I guess Trump got rid of him, was saying that he was going to focus on the activities of these BIEs and that they were a threat to democracy, not the nationalists, 
that, you know, the FBI has records on saying we're the most dangerous groups uh, to America, but rather that they were going to focus on black activists. And we heard, uh, we, we saw arrests of uh, what was called the DFAC group. Uh, I forgot, I can't remember, the, recall the, the group's leader's name, but he was arrested uh, for allegedly pointing a gun um, in the sky, which happened to be in the direction of a federal official, and then he was arrested. This is a, a black nationalist group that would sometimes hold marches um, in the wake of these rising anti-black sentiments uh, that we saw, say, with Charlottesville. Um, they arrested him. And, but we do know that, again, these types of moves of the federal government cracking down on black activism is just uh, is cyclical. Right. Um, we had Edgar Hoover target uh, Marcus Garvey. Um, the federal government had won a settlement against Garvey. We know about the COINTEL program when it came to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so on and so on. And again, this is just the, the, the latest generation of federal authorities trying to silence the voices of black activists or trying to to connect them with something that undermines democracy. Meanwhile, you have other white nationalist groups that are obviously and, and, and more blatantly more of a threat to democracy, say what we saw on January 6th, uh, what we saw happening in the state capital of Michigan. Uh, all of these things were threats to democracy and individuals uh, and lawmakers, right? But yet still we have these arrests happening to black activists, which make up a very small portion of the population of the United States. So we, we can see these disparities every several years. So this is not so surprising. John Jeter, when you think about what these organizations that you all were just describing over the years have been advocating, they haven't been advocating the overthrow of the government. They've been advocating inclusion. They've been, at, as, as was it, Langston Hughes, let America be America again. Let it be the dreamer's dream. Let it be the great strong land of love where neither kings connive nor tyrants scheme. The the America that never was yet must always be. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Or let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. So it's interesting when you look at, because as I read these stories, I always have to ask myself, okay, so they're supposed to be working with Russian agents. What are they accused of saying and what are they accused of doing? And when I read what they're writing, they're telling the truth. The Ukraine is a fraud, for example, and they're advocating inclusion. Am, am, am I right? You're, you're 100% right. It's a, it's, it's a historical fact. The uh, I can make a very strong argument that the two most democratizing forces in the history of the United States are, number one, the African-American community, certainly after slavery, and the Communist Party, particularly in that era during the New Deal, uh, between roughly 1931 or so, uh, particularly beginning with the, with the Scottsboro Boys uh, up until, you know, the, the, the 1960s, probably, uh, mid-1960s, uh, those are the two most uh, democratizing forces in the history of the United States where people, more and more people were brought into the decision-making uh, that concerned their communities. And so uh, this is an enemy. I mean, if you want to talk about, 
uh, the overthrow of the United States government or certainly uh, subversive forces. Uh, the first force I might look to would be the Federal Reserve, right? Uh, that's making it harder and harder for workers to uh, um, uh, uh, make ends meet uh, in the midst of, and I don't care what the, the White House calls it, in the midst of a recession. So no, there's no uh, there's no uh, attempt to overthrow the United States government. Uh, the African American in the African in the Americas, writ large, has always tried to make uh, 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 the land of his birth better, more democratic, and that's what the African Socialist Party has been trying to do. Um, uh, uh, and you know, we can even argue about their effectiveness and their and some of their methods. But what we what we can't argue about, what does not brook debate, is the assertion that they are somehow subversive, uh, that they are somehow a threat to democracy. They're just the opposite. Opposite. They're the antidote to these fascist forces, which are which are uh, bearing down on the state as we speak. And Dr. Colin Campbell, same question to you. You know, they talk about. These organizations are spreading disinformation and no, they're actually countering the false narrative that the United States is promoting. In fact, NBC had a piece a while ago where they just came out and clearly admitted that they as NBC have been spreading misinformation and disinformation on behalf of the government. So you know, we're supposed to be protected by a First Amendment, but the truth is its own defense. Colin Campbell. Yeah. When you look at what has happened again, and, and not to just repeat what I said, but looking at, say, groups like the Black Panther Party, for example, the narrative, the overveiling narrative is that the Black Panther Party was a group that was threatening to overthrow the U.S. government, that they were anti-police, they were anti-democracy, and that these were uh, was just a growing subversive group that we all needed to be afraid of. Um, and, and in many ways, they were also compared to the KKK, except the black equivalent of the KKK. Now that more uh, awareness has been proliferated, we realize that that was a false narrative, that this was a group that was really dedicated to social programs and trying to bring uh, those who were disparately affected by some of the inequities that still that perpetually existed in our nation to give them a little bit more of an even, put them on an even playing field, which simply meant sometimes providing them breakfast, for providing breakfast for children in the morning. It wasn't a group that was trying to overthrow the government. It was trying to protect the citizens of the community against police violence. It was trying to provide them with resources so that they could lead healthier lives. But yet still the prevailing narrative was that they were, some, they were a group to be afraid of. And when you look at the groups that really are a threat to democracy, you could look at uh, some of the, uh, the militias that, um, you know, that some of the militias. And this happened, I believe, in Nebraska, where there was uh, during the Obama administration, when there was a crackdown on a group that was trying to take over a federal building there. We look at the bombing of the Oklahoma building with Timothy McVeigh. And you see that these were white individuals that were trying to threaten the government. And of course, like we said, January 6th. So when you hear these narratives of these groups that are were supposed to be afraid of, when you really do the research, you, you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center, these are the, they talk about groups that really have been more threatening to the U.S. government. We can even look at the political process. 
and the champions of trying to restrict gerrymandering, trying to improve or augment the participation of voters across the nation. When you really think about it, and if those who critically analyze what's happening can see that these are the people that are really trying to bring more democracy to America. But of course, the uh, the narrative there is these are people that are trying to disrupt elections. They're trying to create fraudulent elections, which couldn't be anything further from the truth. If anything, they are actually trying to bring more voter access so America can really live up to its ideal and paradigm of democracy that it tries to export to other countries. It was almost like when uh, the, when you had Juneteenth, for example, or when we celebrate Independence Day. When we think about Independence Day, that was Independence Day for white Americans. It really wasn't Independence Day until maybe after Juneteenth, until the Texas, the enslaved Africans in Texas were really liberated. And then it really became independence for most Americans at that point. And even there, you're being generous. I know. I was going (laughs) to say yes, because we do know that there were people that still lived in very restricted and and enslaved ways even after that. But But the point is there that the the narrative is that we're some kind we're this free democracy and anyone who does not support the white nationalist status quo is a threat to democracy when really it's the opposite it's those who have been marginalized particularly from the black community that have fought for inclusion fought for equity that is really trying to concretize what the actual meaning of democracy is and put that into action in the way that it's I guess, defined or at least described or suggested in the Constitution or at least in the very annals of what it means to live in America or be the United States of America. And just quickly, so those who know that the Black Panther Party's official name was the Black Panther Party for self-defense because they were organized to protect the black community against the fascist and oppressive tactics used by the United States government against the community. John Jeter, polls show almost no one trusts U.S. media after decades of war propaganda and lies. This is a piece in the Orinoco Tribune. The CIA has long manipulated the media, spreading disinformation to justify U.S. wars. Today, just 11 percent of Americans trust television news. John Jeter. I'm surprised it took this long. Uh, you know, I, and it's it's part of a of a disturbing trend, uh, where none of the institutions, the state institutions in the United States, uh, has uh, the people, the American people, have not invested much trust in any of these institutions, be it Congress or the White House, uh, the media, uh, even that the healthcare industry does not uh, enjoy much support, much faith, much confidence from the American people. And this is a very dangerous um, thing that's happening because what that foretells, of course, we can't predict the future, but typically when we see uh, mass unrest and upheaval, uh, much like what we saw in um, the Soviet uh, republics uh, in the the late 80s and early 90s, we see uh, that it's predicated on this mistrust of uh, the governing class. And so that's what's happening. That's what this mistrust in media uh, anticipates or could very well anticipate is very real unrest. And that does not mean, of course, that uh, we'll see, you know, everyone sort of uh, 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 
we'll see black and white unite and fight. We'll we'll very likely see if we see anything, we'll likely see uh, very very real tribalism or an exacerbation of tribalism in the United States as the uh, as people begin to turn on um, the governing forces and the and the media, uh, our political uh, forces who don't really represent us, Democrats or Republicans, don't really represent the real people. So this is not surprising at all, again, like, like very much like the last story, and it anticipates, uh, or at least it, it, it predicts or could predict something very dangerous ahead uh, for the United States. Colin Campbell, the U.S. media apparatus has repeatedly shown itself over decades to be completely unreliable and highly politicized. This is from the Orinoco Tribune. The corporate media's treachery has been especially clear in the demonstrably false stories it disseminated to try to justify the U.S. wars on Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria. But, Colin, it's interesting to me, no matter how many times this is done, Folks seem just to still keep taking the bait because the lies that are being told about Ukraine are the same lies that were told about Iraq. And in fact, some of the footage that has been attributed to coming out of Ukraine was actually Iraqi footage. But folks still keep taking the bait. Colin Campbell. It's easy. The human mind sometimes goes for the path of least resistance. People are very uh, occupied with their daily lives. Inflation is high. People feeling that just the daily, the quotidian struggles of just the human experience, never mind the United States experience. When you have media that has become fast food media, the corporatized media, everything's in quick sound bites. Everything is just presented to you in the most simple way possible. As a journalist, we're, we're told to dumb our writing down. We write, we're supposed to write like we are speaking to someone in the fifth or sixth grade, which is around, what, 10 or 11 years old. And then the stories are only 90 seconds long. And people are just, you know, they could be pseudo-listening, for example. They are not really using critical analysis to look at what's being presented. Obviously, we haven't found those weapons of mass destruction, but we spent millions upon millions of dollars trying to find them and to prove to people that they existed. They never did. And I think that's when uh, if, if there was already an erosion of people uh, seeing through or doubting the verisimilitude of media before that time. But after the Iraq war, there was definitely an increase of that, that dubiousness that the public felt about that with the age of social media. And the the memes that are passed around that can be manipulated, we even have seen the ability of deep fakes that have been passed around. There is an obvious skepticism of the media that we are consuming. As a professor who has taught digital media literacy, that is my most populated class. I have, I've taught classes of close to uh, 100 students in a class, talking about the ways that they need to critically analyze media, to look at different sourcing, to take that extra time to really get to the bottom of news instead of just looking at a headline, because even headlines are, can be commoditized so that they become clickbait. So you read a misleading headline, which is something to be, uh, which is incentivized for people to click on so that whoever's hosting that site can make money. But instead of clicking on that story to read it, they go ahead with the headline. 
But even if they read that story, if that's the only story they read, that could still be skewed. Mm -hmm. They would have to read more stories to really get a more consummate look at what the actual truth is of a story. And many people don't want to invest that time. So we rely on the corporatized media to fill our minds with what they want us to think. And this is the result of why people are Mm -hmm. doubting the, the, the veracity of media today. Doctor, can I add one thing to that? I just yeah. think it's important. Uh, I know when I was a foreign correspondent, especially, uh, I, you know, um, as a journalist, of course, as a black journalist, I always had some level of doubt in my uh, colleagues, both white and black, to be very honest about it. But it really became clear to me as a foreign correspondent, uh, and particularly when you were sent to places for the first time. I remember going to Venezuela for the first time, I think in 2003, and I'd heard all these disparaging things, including what I read in, in my paper, the Washington Post at the time, about Hugo Chavez and a dictator and how loathed he was and how horrible he was. Got there and people were uh, uh, you know, uh, in love with the man. You know, I met a black woman. I remember, I'll never forget this, a black woman who said, the only thing I hate about Hugo Chavez is that he's not my son, you know? <laughs> and so, and so you know, uh, I think in some ways I've always sort of known, I've had sort of inside information on just how flawed the media's narrative is and how biased it is and how, how that's deliberate, right? But I think it's, it's, it's since the uh, 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 9-11, I think that split, that 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 divide between the media and reality has grown exponentially. So we're at um, uh, and then, of course, there's been the marginalization of these uh, more radical voices, many of them black, not all, but many of them black. I mean, uh, how, how much could our discourse benefit from having someone like Phil Donahue? Uh, uh, have a show mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, this is this Phil is. And Donahue, he's not, he's wow. Not, yeah, you know, he's not radical like me, but but still, Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue was an, was an honest journalist. You know, he's he an honest very, journalist. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, he had a good uh, you know, show. I remember course, that. Yeah, of course. I mean, everyone, everyone of a certain age remembers Phil Donahue doing some really groundbreaking journalism that wasn't so biased. And so this is this is just sort of, I guess, a, a deterioration of of journalism and the media. Uh, as as capitalism tries to sort of consolidate its power in its final days. I mean, we're going, we're going, either going to go towards fascism or socialism, and right now it looks like we're going towards fascism. One of the things that's interesting, you mentioned Phil Donahue. I remember his second show didn't last. The first show was phenomenal. I was watching that when I was in high school. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the second show was just as good, but the whole zeitgeist, the whole perspective ha- had changed. Quickly, we've got just a couple minutes left. APAC's millions help unseat Jewish progressive Andy Levine in Michigan. They spent nearly $5 million to target and defeat Levine, far more than was spent by any other group. APAC has been investing in a number of races. Uh, they're challenging Rashida Tlaib. In, in Michigan, they were key in a number of other races. And one of the things I find very interesting is, for some reason, it was a big, big issue when the allegation was Russia was engaging or involving itself into American elections, but somehow APAC money is okay. John Jeter. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, and this is clearly part of a uh, campaign, uh, an active campaign by APAC to uh, rid itself of its more outspoken uh, opposition uh, uh, in um, on Capitol Hill, uh, and it's effective. But I think part of I think we should pay attention to part of why it's effective, and that 
I think speaks. And I don't know the particulars of Carl Levin. Uh, I do. I'm much more familiar with uh, their uh, apex victory in um, the Washington D.C. suburb of, of Maryland, right? Uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, and and uh, Maryland overall, actually. Mm-hmm. And the recent win of uh, uh, Glenn Ivey, who was supported by APAC against uh, Donna Edwards, a former congresswoman uh, who is of uh, who is a progressive, a very real progressive. Glenn right. Ivey is not. Glenn Ivey is a failed state's attorney for Prince George's County and, um, and a reactionary and one who uh, is going to um, uh, uh, bring very bad things to the state of Maryland. You can you can rest assured of that. Uh, but but I think it's interesting. I think it also speaks to it. Apex money is effective in large part because many of these Democratic uh, progressives, more progressives, don't have um, a, a, a real movement behind them. In other words, they can't gin up the vote. And so I know that in Maryland, the vote was very, the vote, voter turnout was very low because Donna Edwards, even though she has a reputation as a progressive, doesn't really have a movement behind her. And so she couldn't gin up the vote because the, 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 the entire uh, uh, campaign by APAC really rests on low voter turnout, as we saw uh, in Cleveland, um, I, I think, both this year and last year, with Nina Turner. Nina Turner, the, the turnout was less than 20%. Why is that? Because black people in Cleveland associate Nina Turner with a very draconian school uh, reform, educational reform bill. Um, and and they they you know for lack of a better term or, or, or uh, uh, a more sophisticated way to put it they don't like her much right right and so they didn't come out to vote for her and they don't like this other woman either Chantel Brown but the fact that the voter turnout was so low that means that uh, the white vote and I believe even the Jewish vote in Cleveland uh, actually pushed Chantel Brown over the. Uh, past the finish line first, at least in the first race. I think it might have been a bit more. Um, uh, the, the distance might have been a little bit. Uh, the gap might have been a little bit wider. In and and a lot of race. people didn't like Don Edwards. Right. Ex- exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. so there's not there's not that movement, right? I mean, you know, you don't have you never have a perfect candidate, right? But when you have someone who is seen as a forceful advocate, Donna Edwards, I think, if I, you know, having been a former resident of Maryland and still having many friends in Maryland, I think Donna Edwards is seen as someone who talks the talk but doesn't walk the wall, right? And so, and so, you know, you're faced with going to vote for her on election day, standing in that long line as they have forced us to do in many of the black communities. You know, a lot of people choose to stay home. You can't really fault them for that, right? It's not... It's not making a difference. And if I can just say this very quickly, because I think it really sums up the situation. I remember in 1992, I was at the Detroit Free Press. And uh, in the pre-internet days, before the, uh, when the elections came out, we didn't have the internet. And so we would all gather at City Hall in Detroit and wait for the election results. And of course, most of us were Democrats. All of us were probably Democrats in Detroit. Uh, And we were waiting to see we were waiting to see if Bill Clinton would win, and when the when the results came in, everybody cheered. And one uh, politician, I'll never I'll never forget, he said, he said, "Yeah, that's great, but you know, it could be black or white, uh, Democrat or Republican, black or white. Uh, the Dow Jones can go up 500 points, down 500 points. Black people still poor, and that's sort of the situation that I think is APAC is is taking advantage of, is exploiting." They spent three three and a half million dollars in lobbying in 2018. I think it's important to remember that they are one of the most powerful lobbying groups out of D.C. NRA is also compared to them as far as their influence and power as well. I think that's important to put into context and perspective. Dr. Colin Campbell, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. John Jeter, gentlemen, thank you both. Really appreciate it. Enjoy your weekends. Look forward to having you guys back. 
Thank you. We look forward to coming back. Have a great weekend. You too. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 